following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So I've been um, sharing some of the teachings on wisdom. This is uh, one-third of the path the Buddha talked about and when he talked about wisdom as part of the spiritual path, he talked about it in terms of having two components, right view and right intention. Sometimes right intention is translated as right thinking. So <clears throat> last week I spoke about part of uh, right view or wisdom, part of wisdom is getting to know, becoming really familiar with the habit of the mind to get caught up in clinging. So anything that we would call wrong view or wrong understanding or relating in an unskillful way always involves some kind of clinging. The mind or heart is struggling with the conditions that are being known in the moment. So it's like our barometer. And as I've been talking about the last few weeks, this is a powerful insight. It's not, we don't want to dismiss this as just something that's obvious. To actually in a moment notice that the mind is in this particular way of relating to our, to the present moment conditions, that it's struggling, it's clinging, it's grasping, it's resisting. That's a big insight because, of course, most of the time the mind is resisting, but we're totally oblivious to it. We're so wrapped up in the story about what's happening that we're, in a sense, missing the most obvious thing, which is the heart hurts, the mind's heavy, the mind's disturbed. So, <clears throat> the, you know, the way the Buddha sets it up is let's frame that experience of feeling agitated or struggling or being stressed, let's frame that, let's highlight that as a relevant present moment happening. It's not insignificant that we're struggling. In fact, if anything, this is what we should be interested in. This is what we should wake up to. Oh, isn't it interesting? This feeling, this experience of resistance or struggling or stress not wanting things to be the way they are, wanting things to be other than they are. We want to highlight that. And I, I mentioned last week that the Buddha talks about four ways of highlighting that, by noticing how we cling to sensuality, how we cling to rites and rituals, ways of doing things, you know, just our own sort of habits, basically. Clinging to our, our views, our opinions, and then specifically, you know, one specific kind of view, clinging to our theories of self. You know, what we take, who we take ourselves to be. That these are the thing, things the mind grasps, holds to. This is how the mind, in a sense, creates a sense of rigidity or uh, creates a sense of ground through the process of grasping. But this ground that we create through our struggles, through our strong opinions, through our uh, beliefs and our views, it's a fragile kind of ground. It's always sort of shifting and moving and falling apart. So this is the stress, the inherent stress in being attached to anything, to any particular sense experience, any particular way of doing something, any particular view or our theory of who we are, being attached to anything is a setup for insecurity because the process in the process of grasping, we're trying to make something, you know, trying to find something in a way that we can kind of rest. The ego can rest. Okay, this is how it is. This is good and I've got it or I want that and that will be good. But because of the shifting nature of life, because 
that particular view or particular understanding itself is shifting. There's really no ground there. It's inherently frustrating and stressful. There's a lot of sort of interesting teachings around right view. I'm thinking of one in particular where Sariputta, I'm sorry, uh, Anathapindaka, this uh, famous layperson at the time of the Buddha. Some of you know he he was famous for a couple reasons. One of which, uh, when he first uh, got to know the Buddha and was, and I think had uh, deep insight right from the start, stream entry as it's called, and uh, wanted to do something to support the Buddha and the monks and nuns. And uh, he wanted to buy this park that I think one of the noble people owned, like the prince or the king owned. And the king didn't want to sell it, or whoever owned it didn't want to sell it. So he said, okay, sure, I'll sell this to you if you give me enough gold coins that covers the whole park in gold coins. So Anathapindaka did it. (laughs) So he was a, a great benefactor and a very wise person. And one day he was walking in the park and he noticed uh, some people talking about different sort of philosophical views, spiritual views. The cosmos is eternal, the cosmos is not eternal, the cosmos is finite, the cosmos is infinite, the soul and body are the same, the soul is one thing and the body another. After death, the Buddha exists. After a death, the Buddha does not exist, and on and on like this. And uh, Because uh, uh, Anathapindaka had asked him, you know, what are you talking about? So they kind of explained like the different views they were debating. And he uh, sort of said, well, you know, this is not what my teacher says. And they asked him, well, how, what, you know, what's wrong? What would you say? And this is what he said. As to the venerable one who says the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything otherwise is worthless, This is the sort of view I have. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Now this view has been brought into being. It's fabricated, willed, dependently co-arisen. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. This venerable one thus adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. And he says the same thing with all the other views that the people had. So basically he's saying that you're kind of trying to take your stance, create some fixed ground on something that's inherently made up. You know, you we concoct a view, the world is terrible. You know, and then we try to live in that view like it's going to give us some ground. Or we have a different view, the world is great. My partner is great. My life is great. And then we try to sort of live in that view. So it's the, it's not so much the view itself, it's that we're trying to extract something from the belief, from the view, like some solid ground that makes it stressful and fundamentally unskillful. So when he said that to the wanderers, to these ascetics in the park, these, these weren't followers of the Buddha, they were other seekers. They said, well, you know, you've sort of put down our our views, so let's hear what your view is. (laughs) Now tell us what your views, what views you have. And this is what Anathapindaka said. Because he has to, he does state a view. And the whole point of right view, like according to the Buddha, right view is the view that understands that even right view is just a view, you know, not something to cling to. And this is really important about the teachings of the Buddha. When you look at the teachings that he spoke way back when, he didn't mean for them to be uh, like dogma, you know, okay, you just believe in this. They're just sort of pragmatic instructions that you use to have to sort of evoke some effect in the mind 
And that's their purpose. And so he gave the image of a raft, you know. If you wanted to get across the flooded river, you take the logs, you take some vines, you tie them together, you'd make yourself a raft. If you happen to make it across, would you need to pick up the raft and carry it along with you? So this is a famous story from the teachings of the Buddha. He said, no, you'd, you'd put the raft down, you'd let it go. The raft has a function, it's a pragmatic device to release the mind, you know, in terms of the teaching. The teachings are a pragmatic device to help the mind release itself from clinging to thoughts, to concepts. So that, that teaching is a concept. You know, what I just said, that's a concept, that's a story in a sense. But it's the kind of story that can be turned back on itself eventually. That the Buddhist teachings, this is just a thought in the mind. It's like this. We don't need to cling to it. So this is basically what Anattapindika says. He says, he's kind of stating his view, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful or suffering. Whatever is stress is not mine, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. So, householder, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated. And he goes, the ascetic repeats back to Anathapindaka. You thus adhere to that very stress, submit yourself to that very stress. So he's sort of turning his argument back on Anathapindaka. And this is what he says, Venerable Sirs, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently co-arisen, that is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not mine, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment, with wisdom, as it actually is present, I also discern the higher escape from it as it actually is present. When this has been sa had been said, the wanderers, wanderers fell silent, abashed, sitting with their shoulders drooping, their heads down, brooding at a loss for words. Anathapindaka, the householder, perceiving that the wanderers were silent, abashed, at a loss for words, got up and left. So the point is, this particular view that Anathapindaka is teaching, which is basically what he had learned from the Buddha, it leads somewhere. It has a practical effect. And the way he describes that is having seen this well with right discernment or wisdom, as it actually is present, I also discern the higher escape from it as it actually is present. So this is like, uh, again, just another way of saying what I said earlier. Right view is the view in the mind. So again, we're not talking about a philosophical stance. We're talking about a mental activity. A view is something we concoct, something we think, right? We conceive of this view. So right view, you know, according to the way the Buddha taught, right view is the particular view we conceive, we bring up in the mind that leads to the mind letting go of views letting go or dropping clinging. So it has a, the definition of right view is based on this particular effect of the mind releasing clinging. So if you haven't experienced a moment of freedom, you haven't had right view yet. Because by definition, right view is a view that releases the mind in a moment at least, for one moment, releases the mind of any clinging, any grasping any weight in that moment. So, and the particular strategy of right view is to see things as, as Anathapinika succinctly described. You know, whatever is brought into being, whatever we think of, whatever we concoct in our mind, is fabricated. Right? So like we might have a story about whatever, like how our life is going or what's happening in the world. Now, it's fine to have those stories, but we want to discern that that story, that thought we have, is a fabrication. We've concocted, you know, like if you think your particular home life with your family and your whomever, whoever you live with, you think it's going well. Well, that's a that's a story that we have concocted in our mind. 
right now. That's what that's what that is. Does that make sense? So we know. He says we'll notice that it's fabricated. It's willed, meaning that there's some kind of volitional piece to this, where we, in a sense, want to think that we want to conceive or construct that view of things. So it's fabricated. It's constructed because of this volition, dependently co-arisen, meaning that the particular story we have, you can just name whatever, about ourselves, about common ground, about your family, about the world, about our past, about our potential future, whatever story, whatever conceiving we have is dependently co-arisen. Meaning, I can't conceive of something that construction has to be based on what I already know. Does that make sense? So it's like when I start having a story about somebody else, what I think about that person is going to be based on what I thought about other people in the past. Like she's like them or she's not like them. She's better than them or she's worse than them. She's like this other person I used to know, but, but also has some of these qualities of this other guy I knew. Do you know what I mean? So whatever we conceive of, how do we concoct or conceive of something? Well, we take bits and pieces of things that we've conceived of before. We reorganize, we construct something. So this is this dependently arisen, meaning that we're just sort of reorganizing things in different ways, sort of shuffling the deck a little bit. It may look new, but it's sort of just the same old, same old. It's coming out of our lived experience, out of the kind of conceivings that we're already participating or playing with. And it's inconstant. It's like whatever conceiving or construction we have about the past or the future or myself or somebody else, it's not enough to have that thought once. We have to have it over and over again. It's like we have to keep reigniting the stories we have about things. So if we have a particular view that I'm not so good, I'm not doing so good, I haven't been that skillful, well, we have to, you know, we keep having to regenerate that feeling and thought we have about ourselves. And so Anatta Pinnika points this out that it's fabricated, will, dependently co arisen, and it's inconstant, it's in flux, and that anything that is that, is stressful. It's like being attached, being identified, being dependent on a fabrication like this is stressful. This is suffering. You know, however we conceive ourselves, conceive another, conceive our future, conceive the past, conceive the world at large, no matter how we conceive things, you can't get away. If there's a dependency on that conception, on what we're thinking, that's stressful. That's something we, then not something theoretical, that's something we can actually see. You can, this is something actually we can notice in sitting practice. Like when we have some continuity of just that simple, open, clear presence with, with let's say the breath, the breathing process, just feeling the belly expanding, feeling the belly contracting, or maybe you're feeling the breath at the nostrils feeling the touching sensation as the air comes in, feeling the touching sensations as the air goes out. So the mind has been trained to have some continuity. In order to have that continuity, it has to abandon its concocting, its conceiving, right? Because you can't do both. You can't be clear, open, fully present with the process of breathing or just sensations more generally in the body and conceiving at the same time. Like this is the great thing. The mind can only do one thing at a time. It seems like the mind does a lot of things at the same time, but it's just because it's very quick. You know, it does this and then it does that. But if we get some continuity with mindfulness, the conceiving has to be abandoned. And so that's why it feels so nice to be radically in the present moment, because to be fully present for a few moments means that the mind has dropped conceiving for a while. And then the great thing is, I mean, it's not necessarily great, but it's a great insight, is then when the mind picks up conceiving again in the next moment, it starts to think, God, I'm really doing this practice well, for example. Because we've just momentarily, uh, in the moment before, noticed the relief 
the release of just being present, the mind free of concocting, once it starts concocting a sense of Mark who's practicing well, all of a sudden I notice the experience of heaviness, the complication of being a somebody who's practicing well. That's a much more heavy, contracted state of being than breathing in, breathing out. So we start to see how suffering comes into being, how suffering falls out of being. This is such a powerful insight to have. And it's just working with this right view, seeing that any kind of conceiving, the Buddha said this in a more simple way, basically a, re, a repeat of this discourse between Anatta Pindaka and these uh, ascetics, where the, the Buddha basically said, any conceiving, whatever the mind conceives, no matter what it is, is stressful. There's just no way around it. So the question is, can we first of all experience that in a moment, a moment where the mind isn't conceiving and notice that taste of freedom that corresponds to the mind being really simple, clear, present, so really right in the middle of the moment. So it's not like distant in some la-la land, but really right in the middle of this mind-body moment, but not clinging, not conceiving or constructing stories that limit or contract the heart or mind. So if we can experience that, then we're going to start experiencing, start experiencing when the mind begins to concoct, we'll, we'll get the insight, my God, this is suffering. <laughs> this is heavy. This is not skillful. This is what needs to be abandoned. This is the second noble truth, that any clinging is suffering and needs to be abandoned. And the third noble truth is when the heart or mind abandons that concocting, that attachment to thought, attachment to view, there's relief or release. This is from Ajahn Tanisro. When faced with a variety of views about the world and the self, right view looks at views not in terms of their content. And see, this is the difficult part. Because to us, to each of us, the kind of view that we concoct, we conceive of, you know, the point of view or the thoughts, are of course almost by definition interesting to us we wouldn't concoct, I mean, generally, boring thoughts. You know, so when I come up with an opinion about what's going on here right now, it's going to be seductive. So we don't look, you know, as a practice, as de in the development of wisdom, we don't pay attention to the content of our thoughts because it, the, the content is seductive. Is it Bob? Is it Jim? Yeah, Bob brought up a really important point. Was it Sunday or last Wednesday? Pardon? Was it Sunday or last Wednesday? No, it was uh, Sunday. Yeah, so just a few days ago. About just seeing, you know, in terms of politicians and, and just more generally in the whole uh, political structure, the kind of mendacity or this deceit that is so much a part of what goes on. And... Uh, and just feeling like uh, it sounded a little despairing about that whole process, about seeing it in that way. And so that content, you know, when we have that view about the world, and you know, somebody else could have another view, like another person could have a view just because of their particular circumstance, their particular upbringing, let's say, that things are just great and really great things are happening. And for them, that content, content could be really seductive. But for Bob and people who think like that or see things that way, that sort of uh, despairing quality like life it really is broken, the system's broken, 
that content is really seductive. So as a practice, I'm not, not saying that it is true or it isn't true, but as a particular practice, we train and not paying attention to the content of the thoughts. So this is like part of the mindfulness practice. We're not attuning to the content of our thoughts, to the content of whatever we're conceiving of, but that we are conceiving. We're paying attention to that. So we're paying attention to the activity of construction, not sort of what the finished product looks like when we construct a thought about the world, let's say. Does that make sense? So it's like a, they're still there, it's sort of what we look at. So when we have a thought, we can look at the content or we can look at the fact that this thought has come up, has been constructed. And that's what we want to look at. So the construction process of a particular thought is the same regardless of the particular thought. Like I could construct the thought that Nick sits almost every morning at Common Ground. Or I can concoct the thought, you know, the world's going to hell. Well, though the content is radically different between those two thoughts, but how the mind constructs it, it's really exactly the same. You know, that, that the mind has sort of put together different mental activity in a way, you know, just like brought some uh, concepts, some words that have some meaning together in a way that sort of paints a picture. That whole process we call conceiving is exactly the same, even though the content is very different. If we focus on the content, we're likely to get lost in the content. Content leads to more content, right? As soon as I have the thought that the world's going to hell, I want to remember, think about why I think it's going to hell or what who's to blame for it going to hell. Do you know what I mean? Or if I think about Nick usually sits every morning at Common Ground, I'm going to start thinking about other people who often are here in the morning. You know, and why aren't some other people here in the morning? <laughs> Where are the rest of you? <laughs> or things like that. So that's just, you know, we all know this process of association. One thought leads to another. And so this is what the Buddha means by thoughts, you know, being content being seductive. So. Ajahn Tanisro, this well-known American Buddhist monk, says, when faced with a variety of views about the world and the self, right view looks at the views not in terms of their content, but simply as an event in the mind, in and of themselves. Right? The event of construction or the event of conceiving, not the content. And then he goes on, it sees them as part of a causal chain fabricated, inconstant, stressful, and thus not self, not worthy of attachment. Meaning that the thought, Nick sits every morning, that just didn't come out of blue, right? Something initiated that thought, seeing Nick sitting there, right? You see the guy, and then that reminds you, oh yeah, he sits in the morning. Or you see something about the world, you know, some trash left on the side of the street, and you go, oh my God, this whole world's going to hell. So. That seeing that is the trigger. It's not, so this is what he means by dependently origin, or, arisen, or the call, it's part of a causal chain, fabricated. So we see things, instead of just seeing the trash, the mind gets confused by that visual experience, doesn't know what to do with it. So there's a visual experience, and then there's a feeling tone, right? Ah. You know, because we don't like trash or whatever, it's unpleasant. And the heart doesn't know what to do with that experience of seeing and the unpleasantness of seeing the trash. So it concocts a thought. Oh my God, the whole world's going to hell. Nobody even picks up after themselves anymore. So we need to be able to see it just as an event in itself, and to see that it's part of a causal chain. It's fabricated and constant, stressful, not self, not worthy of attachment. In this way, it makes the mind dispassionate to all other views, dispassionate to the terms they use, dispassionate to the claims to truth. Right? Dispassionate here 
doesn't mean we're saying it's true or it's not true. It just means, dispassionate means, it's not worthy of clinging. It's not worthy of the heart getting tight. So when we see trash on the ground or see something beautiful, so whatever it is that we experience, whatever it is the mind does, dependent on that particular experience. We're seeing that it's conditioned, that it's a part of this causal arising, that it's not self, that it doesn't need attachment, and learning that it's possible to be dispassionate, to not cling. So this is like an experiment, and this is why we practice sitting meditation, because we go to a relatively simple place doing a simple thing like being aware of the breath or being aware of the body sitting or being aware of hearing. And we, with these relatively simple experiences, we're practicing being dispassionate, just letting things happen without needing to conceive of things, without setting in motion this chain of events of one thought leading to another. And so even when thoughts do arise, even when conceptions, constructions do arise in the mind, then we'll notice that that's just a thought. It's just a construction, dependently arisen and stressful if the mind identifies with it, and liberating if the mind just let, leaves it alone. So we don't need to worry that I've been like thinking, 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 lost in thought, all bound up, all entangled. Because as soon as there's a moment of mindfulness and we notice that the mind is thinking, there's the possibility of just letting that be. Now if I start to judge myself for all that, that judgment, you see, is dependently arisen. It's like, it's like thinking the world's going to hell. Now I'm thinking I'm going to hell because I'm judging, you know, I'm sitting here judging and I should be meditating. But instead, we can just notice that the mind is thinking, that the mind is worrying, that the mind is planning. Let that be an event in and of itself, dependently arisen. It's like it, the chain has to be broken somewhere. There's only one place it can be broken, in the present moment, right now. It doesn't matter that we've been lost for 20 minutes in thought, caught up in some way, the heart, mind, body, all tied in knots, all constricted. As soon as we're aware that it's like this, there is the possibility to let it go. But we won't let it go if we get seduced by the content of that stream of thought. We have to see that this particular arising right now in this moment is just a particular arising right here in this moment. It's just an event being known in the mind. It's just the content, it's just the emotion or the feeling tone, the visceral feeling in the body. It's just what it is. That's what we mean by seeing it or relating with this passion. Another way of saying dispassion is wisdom. Wisdom and dispassion are, in a sense, synonymous. When we're wise, we're not seeing the present moment event in terms of this causal sequence, or um, kind of seduced by the sort of stream of thought. We're seeing it as just an independent event. It's just this. And he goes on, he says, right view then turns on itself to see itself as part of a similar causal chain. This loosens any sense of attachment even for right view so that the mind can see the view simply as an event. There is this. This entry into per the perceptual mode of emptiness leads straight to the higher escape. He has that in quotes because it's a sort of a phrase leading to liberation or to freedom the state of non-fashioning, which is Ajantinisro's way of saying not constructing, not fashioning, then that then becomes present to awareness. Because right view is the only form of view that contains the seeds of its own transcendence in this way, it is the only form of knowing that is skillful enough to lead to awakening. So this is tautological in the the way the Buddha teaches. 
right view is the view that isn't confused by the view. Does that make sense? It's like it's a view that understands that views are just views. They're not some sort of uh, some kind of permanent truth that defines things. It's a right view is a view that helps us see that any conceiving, no matter how subtle, no matter how skillful, any kind of thought or conceiving in the mind is just a conceiving in the mind. And you know, we can go back and forth like, just take a view that you hold dearly, whatever it might be, like, I really love my daughter, or I really love my cat, or I really hope that things turn out for the best. You know, we can have that view, right? So get, just get a view in your mind. Can't wait till I get to bed tonight. That's a view. That's a concocting or conceiving. And just go back and forth, like get lost in that idea, that thought, oh, it'd be so nice to be in bed, you know? And, it, and when we let ourselves sort of get seduced by the content, it's like it has its own reality. It's like a dream. It has its own coherence, right? It's like it makes sense. It feels real. But we can, in a sense, and this is just a sense, in a sense we can step outside it and we see, well, that's just a thought. It's just a thought here and now. It's like if you're in a movie theater, it's the same thing. You can be totally drawn into the story. When and I saw Harry Potter, the latest Harry Potter at the Riverside, Riverview Theater on Friday night, you know, you can get pulled in. And then in the next moment, you can just remember you're sitting here in a theater. And then pulled in in theater. And we can practice. This is part of the practice. So it's not that we should be afraid of thoughts, afraid of opinions, afraid of views. We just don't want to be confused by them. So when we have a strong view, we know it's just a strong view. It's just an opinion, a particular way of conceiving that has arisen conditionally here in the mind. If I get identified and take it to be more than what it is, the heart suffers, guaranteed. If I, if I don't forget that it's a constructed event in the mind, then the heart remains light and unburdened by it. It doesn't keep us from responding skillfully in the world. So I'll leave it here so that we have some time to check in with each other. We'll probably spend another week or two talking about wisdom or right view. I'll just leave it with two quotes that I think kind of fit here, and then we'll open it up. One is for, both from different teachers from different traditions. Uh, one person said, the best way to worship God is to have no ideas about God. Sort of interesting sort of point of view. And then another teacher said, it's like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. That this is the experience of when we take our conceptions to be more than what they are, it's like barking up a tree that isn't there. We, we impute a reality to our conceptions that uh, kind of gives them more weight than they deserve. And then we live inside of them and feel burdened by them. So, any thoughts from your own experience, noticing the views in your mind, noticing their weight, noticing moments of being liberated from your a particular view that had been weighing you down, or any questions about the talk tonight? Yeah, Nick. So, would you say Captain Sullenberger then, when he landed that plane in the country? Maybe a little louder, Nick. Uh, I'm talking about uh, something I've been thinking about with the pilot that landed that plane in the Hudson. Would you say that <clears throat> he was being dispassionate? With his thinking and his decision, almost absolutely. Yeah, you know, I haven't read too much about uh, like interviews of what was going on in his mind at the time, but I could, I can imagine that would be an apt description. I mean, one of the ways that uh, people who work in crises a lot get trained is to just do the next thing and not to be confused by the intensity 
of maybe the emotions that have been triggered or the emotions of other people around them, but just to do the next thing. And this is also true with uh, the meditative process too, by learning to attend to the breath, learning to attend to walking, learning to attend to sort of the nuts and bolts of our present moment experience, it really allows us to stay grounded and not to get lost in the froth that gets whipped up around us, you know, as we're moving through our lives. There's just so much intensity, so much um, emotional energy that's seductive. So by learning to sort of stay focused on what's right in front of us, seeing, reaching, hearing, just the elemental nature of our present moment experience, it really allows us to be dispassionate. But if we start getting uh, confused by the various emotions around us or the various emotions in our own mind and heart and getting identified or attached, then the mind tends to spin, tends to concoct stories and then get lost in the stories that we concoct. You know, for example, he could, it's so easy to imagine that he would have been much less skillful if he was really worried about being skillful. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I really want to do this right. That's what made me think about it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, Paul. We are brought up to believe that these thoughts are very, very important. And I have a hard time letting go of them because there's almost, there, well, no, there's an actual sort of moral imperative to pay attention to thoughts because they're very important, uh, especially the religious, so-called religious thoughts, but also thoughts about ourselves and others. And uh, I still struggle with that. It's like it's wrong not to think about these things. Yeah. Um, this is the great thing about a daily sitting practice or a regular retreat practice, especially longer retreats, we see our thoughts so clearly, repetitively, over and over again, we lose that addiction to thoughts. We realize, my God, it's like someone's left a radio on and it's just on. Have you ever done that, like where you're falling asleep and the radio's on and it's just like that endless chatter of something or you're hearing a conversation? And it really changes our relationship to thought when we have observed it so clearly, so with such uh, consistency. That's where the dispassion comes from. We're literally wearing out our habit of identifying with our thoughts by just seeing the impersonal and repetitive nature of the thinking process, the worrying process, the planning process, the judging critical process. It's not personal. It only seems personal because we haven't paid attention in a careful, systematic way. But when we start paying attention in a careful, systematic way, our relationship to thoughts becomes transformed, slowly, usually. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, remind me of your name. I forgot again. My name's Peter. Peter. Um, I was just thinking about grasping and then just our whole state of education how that's all about kind of grasping for knowledge and there's that contradiction and, and I guess I wonder if you have any thoughts on that is it is it pursuing an education is that something where are we actually is that a bad thing or use that knowledge to do good, then it's okay to grasp for that knowledge. Yeah. Well, it's probably mixed. You know, like, that the isn't, there's, there's not just necessarily one intention operating in the mind in any moment. There could be many intentions. Some of them could be greed-based. Some of them might be fear-based, like, I better keep learning or everyone's going to get ahead of me, you know. And some of them may be really compassion-based, like, uh, it's sort of a deep, resonant intention to understand things deeply in a way that will allow 
the mind, the heart to be more skillful in the world, to make less mistakes that cause suffering. You know, that's a wholesome intention. And it leads some people to come to a place like Common Ground or to practice on their own or to do, you know, to just sort of look at their mind in a way they, they wouldn't otherwise bother to look at because they recognize sort of the limitations of what they know and want to learn. So there are probably a lot of different motivations. And instead of trying to second guess ourselves, like, oh, I shouldn't go take this course, or I shouldn't get involved in this activity, or I should, but just to make, just see what you're going to do. And if you do do it, then bring awareness to it. Like, really explore the different intentions that get you to come to Common Ground on Wednesday night. Are they wholesome, or are they fear-based, greed-based? You know, you just have to check. And not to assume it's always going to be one or the other, so that it's like a moment-to-moment -moment thing. So it's less about whether you continue your studying, you know, and more about what you're learning about the mind that wants to study. That's really the point. So it's not so much whether we get married or stay single, whether we become a Buddhist practitioner or a Christian practitioner, but are we actually interested in the mind that's drawn to Christianity or the mind that's drawn to Buddhism or the mind that's drawn to further education or the mind that's drawn to just having a simple life at home? You know, getting interested in the mind means getting interested in the intentions in the mind. And what are those intentions? Are they intentions to trust? Are those intentions contracted? Or are there intentions that have a sense of ease or freedom, lightness to them? In other words, if we want to be free, we have to practice intentions that are freeing. If we want to be wise and loving, we, the intentions, the sort of seeds in our heart, have to be have that quality. If we want to be loving, but the seed, we, we're doing it with attachment, well, we're practicing attachment. We're going to get better at attachment, you know, really being attached to being loving. Well, we're going to get more attached, not more loving. So we have to really look at what the intentions, the sort of qualities in the heart that are actually getting us to do whatever we're doing. That's what's relevant. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, Bill, and then in the back. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, um, like you were saying, intentions become thoughts, and thoughts become actions, and actions become habits, and habits become personality. And so um, uh, that uh, this chain has to be broken somewhere. And I think one has to catch the mind kind of red-handed uh, <laughs> in the act, so to speak. And that takes practice. Yeah. And that's a good way to think about that, what I said uh, a while back about when we just have a few moments of continuity, with the breath, with just the body sitting, with hearing, or just walking. When we're fully present in that relaxed and clear way, that's when we catch the mind red-handed, because right there in that space, that relatively free, unafflicted space of the mind or heart, arises a conceiving, a concocting, and we'll see how that relatively uncontracted, easeful space of the mind becomes contracted and burden. And all of a sudden, there's a somebody who's suffering. In a sense, seemingly out of nowhere, this has arisen. And that's what I think Dill means about catching the mind red-handed. Yeah, thanks, Dill. I forgot your name. Monica. Monica. I, I'm a little bit confused um, in regards to like, the, the two questions that came up a little earlier about like school and the things that were brought up to do and intentions. So I'm thinking about like college or trying to decide what you want to do when you're being brought up, your identity, that's kind of ultimately claiming, right? When you try to when you try to define who you are as you're growing up, I'm talking about maybe the younger years. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a point where you have to go to school and you're defined and you know culturally at least in my world, you're defined by what you do. So there's all this claiming, and I'm confused about where or how to get that clarity between what the intention is that you're
you're trying to do for your for your life or your career or your job or your existence and do that without the clinging part. Yeah. How well, do you follow your passion with dispassion? Well <laughs> this is a this is our exploration, isn't it? But don't worry about what's already been set in motion because it's already been set in motion. So right now, what, what got you here? What gets you to go home? What gets you up in the morning? So these, what gets us to do anything, to think something, to do something, to say something, is what we call intention. There has to be an intention in the mind or the heart for anything to happen. And we're, we're becoming students of intention. So instead of thinking that the way to be happy is to do the right thing, to make the right choice, to marry this person or not to marry this person, to go to school or to not go to school. Instead of that, we're thinking, if I want to be happy, I have to be a good student of intention. I have to see what intentions are skillful, meaning that they support, they feel like release, and they lead to release. And what intentions are unskillful, meaning they feel contracted and they lead to contraction. So that's what we're a student of. We're less concerned about uh, these choices. That we still have to choose things. You know, am I going to marry this person or not? Go to school or not? But we're focused in this other place and we're trusting that skillful decisions will come out of this careful investigation of intention. Yeah. Otherwise, we're trying to make our decisions based on a story, like based on who I am, who I think I am, I should either marry this person or not, or go to school or not. But it's like we're, that's the wrong place basically to make the decision because that's concocted. It doesn't actually give us the necessary information. I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a moment, let go of the words. And noticing any particular views, concoctings, conceivings in the mind with this passion, just understanding that it's like this. And to notice that it can be quite beautiful to bring up a wholesome conceiving like May I live this life for the benefit of all beings. May I develop mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion as a way of taking care of myself and taking care of all beings. So this is a conceiving, but we know it's a conceiving. And we feel that the intentions in this particular view, they feel really nice. They're light. Not so much contraction with this view to live in a way that supports the well-being, the happiness, the freedom from suffering for all beings. So thanks everyone for coming tonight. So good to be here together. There's a day long Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.